Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, July 10th, 2022, and this is show number 896. This is the last show before Steve and I jaunt off to Iceland. It's very weird for me to be packing and not including things like, you know, flip-flops, shorts, and sunscreen, but I'm still looking forward to seeing a land unlike no other. We'll be staying for three days in the city of Reykjavik, and then we'll circumnavigate the island country in a small ship with only 100 passengers. Now, as floating petri dishes go, we're hoping the small number of people on a ship that can accommodate 200, along with requirements for a negative test before embarking, will keep us safe. We've stocked up on KN95 masks for the airport and flights. We've had four vaccinations each, so everyone keep their fingers crossed for us, okay? Well, another trip means another opportunity for me to make a diagram. This trip isn't nearly as complex as our Dubai-India-Nepal trip, but I made it fun by using an outline of Iceland from the Noun Project, and I make these diagrams partly because I'm obsessed with diagramming, but I also do it because I have situational awareness of my trips when I have one of these diagrams. In a few cases, it has saved us from disaster. For example, when we went to Ecuador, the Galapagos, and Peru to go hike Machu Picchu, I made my initial diagram and discovered that all of the Peruvian intra-country flights were non-existent. I contacted our travel company, and the agent blithely told me, oh, you're supposed to arrange those yourself. I was like, so when were you planning on telling me that, darling? We could have easily gotten off the train after leaving Machu Picchu, only to discover we had no way of getting to our next destination. On the Dubai-India-Nepal trip, the diagram was really invaluable. As we entered each country, we had five separate country entrances, even though we only went to three countries because we kind of backtracked. As we went into each country, immigration would ask us, where are you staying? I simply handed them my laminated diagram and I let them figure it out. Well, I never got any hassle as a result, so that was the, the, the purpose of that. I was surprised that none of the agents appeared to be amazed and delighted that I had made it so easy for them. You know, they're probably just of a culture that doesn't express such excitement. I'm sure they were secretly thrilled. I make my diagrams with diagrams.net, a web service, or their downloadable desktop app. And if you'd like to amaze and delight your immigration officials or even your own family, I suggest you give it a try. If you'd like to follow along with our trip to Iceland, I've included a copy of the diagram in the show notes. Since we'll be gone to Iceland, remember this means there will be no live show on July 17th and July 24th. Last week, I tried to tell you that, and I got the dates wrong when I was talking about when to get submissions in, and I got to tell you, I nearly gave Alistair a heart attack when he listened to the show. So July 17th and July 24th are definitely the dates that they are doing the shows, so there will be no live show. Alistair and Bart have enough material to do fabulous shows for you, and many thanks to the contributors who've made this possible. Now, if you are working on any content, please still send it along. We'll be returning from our trip very late on Monday the 24th and quite possibly just a smidge jet lagged. And then I have three days home before we leave to go see Forbes for the weekend to celebrate his sixth birthday, where I probably won't get any work done at all. We will be doing a live show that weekend, but I will most likely need content. So please bring it on. This week, I published actually not one, but two Chit Chat Across the Ponds. In the first one, I interview author Molly DeFrank on her book, Digital Detox, The Two-Week Tech Reset for Kids. We were joined by Lindsay Tondi, who has put Molly's advice to the test with her son Forbes. Now, if you listen to my shows, you might find the idea of detoxing your children from tech for two weeks to be a simply crazy idea. 
In Molly's book, she describes the behavior she was seeing in her own six children and the transformation she and her husband saw when screens were off the table. Molly has applied this not just in her own home, but she's helped parents online and in real life learn how to make sure technology is there as a tool to accomplish things, not just for the dopamine hit to their brains. Her book gives practical steps to follow. She said she wrote the book she wished she'd had to guide her when she pulled her screens, her children off of screens a few years ago. Lindsay describes how she's worked through the book and how Forbes has actually really enjoyed the change, how his reading ability has taken off, and how he calls her out if she's mindlessly scrolling on her phone. If you've been noticing that your kids are... Uh, maybe turning into monsters when you take screens away from them, you really might want to take a look at Molly's book, Digital Detox, and you can listen to her explain more about that in Chit Chat Across the Pond, number 735. Now let me tell you about the second episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond this week. I'm about to go on vacation, like I mentioned, and I suspect that we'll have little to no internet to play with. It would be really cool if I could use any downtime I have, like on the 11-hour plane flight, to do some programming. Unfortunately, the code we create these days is often filled with references to content delivery networks to get needed libraries like jQuery and Bootstrap. While on my walk on Friday, I was mentally preparing a post for our Programming by Stealth Slack community to ask them, how can I modify my code so that it doesn't require the internet to function? Imagine my surprise and delight when I saw Bart's topic for this week's Programming by Stealth. It's all about how to do exactly what I wanted. He covers how to prepare your computer for departure, how it's important to clone any repos you might want to reference, and most importantly, how to localize your dependencies, and then what to undo when you return back home and why. It was exactly everything I needed to know, and I I hope it helps you too whenever you disconnect from the net but still want to play with your code. You can find this in your podcatcher of choice, Chit Chat Across the Pond number 736, or Programming by Stealth, Tidbits 5 of Why. I have a book recommendation for you. It's a book called Through the Ages, The Fox and Crow Chronicles, Book 1. I read this book because it was written by Sarah Alder, daughter of Kevin Alder, also known as Big in Virginia, also known as Steve's Wingman in the live chat room. Now, I originally bought this book just to support Kevin's daughter. She's a new author, and I thought it'd be kind of fun to just, you know, support the home team. But I got to tell you, it's a really good book. It's an imaginative book about a young woman who is pursued romantically by a man who has been dead for, I think it was 400 years. The storyline is like nothing I've ever read before, and I love it when a book is hard to explain, like you can't say, oh, it's like this book, it's different from anything I've ever read. The characters are very vividly described, and the scenery and the rooms and things like that, but without being all verbose. Like, I don't like it when somebody goes on for 14 paragraphs about like how the hills looked in the sunshine or some nonsense like that. Just enough to give you a really vivid feel for what everything looks like. I am thrilled that this is book one because I seriously need to know what's going to happen next because I did not see where this story was going. Again, the book is called Through the Ages, The Fox and Crow Chronicles, book one, and I put a link to it on Amazon so you can go check it out for yourself. Last week, I told you a little story about a permissions problem reading files I'd created myself and then stored on my Synology. I explained that I tried every solution I could think of, including reinstalling macOS over the top in order to get permissions to my own darn files. Then I told you that Ed Tobias, also known as Mr. Ed in our live chat room, had given me the correct solution way back at the beginning of this adventure. He had suggested I just simply delete my keychain entry for my Synology, but I didn't want to do it. 
In the end, I did it and it solved my problem. As much as it pained me, last week I was forced to admit that Ed was right. But this story isn't over. In our Slack at podfeed.com slash Slack, Frank Petrie, also known as Wheels, said he'd been having a similar problem, but that it was isolated to just PDF files, and that had nothing to do with storing the files on network-attached storage. As I thought about what Frank wrote, I was kicking myself, because when I was having the problem, I never tested anything but PDF files, so I couldn't verify whether it was the same problem he was having or something different. Well, the kicking came to an end this week when the darn permissions problem returned. I printed a file to PDF, stored it on my Synology, and then tried to open it, only to be denied access. I tried opening a couple of other PDFs that I had not created but had simply moved to the Synology, and I couldn't open those either. Then I remembered what Frank had said and that it seemed to be a problem with Preview. I tried opening an Excel spreadsheet on my Synology, and guess what? It opened without any pesky permission errors. This showed that the problem was with PDFs only, but I needed a way to prove that it was Preview at fault. I went into Setup and I downloaded Nitro PDF Pro, which I think is the new PDF pen since Smile sold that to Nitro Software. I tried to open one of my PDFs on my Synology with Nitro's PDF tool, and it opened without any complaints. I can't quite say that Ed was wrong because it was a good idea and I should have tried it sooner, but I can say that Frank was right. Now, after Frank posted, Steve Goodenough posted in Slack on that same conversation, explaining he's been struggling with this same error message on Big Sur, but that it went away for him in a recent security update for the OS. He gives his reasons why he's on Big Sur and they are legitimate. Anyway, I'm hoping this isn't a generalized problem, but I'm sure Preview is involved since Nitro can open these PDFs. That's bad enough because it means my hands are tied now on how to fix it without Apple's help. And don't make me call the phone call of sadness. I just do not have the energy for that right now. I've been using the Grammarly plugin for browsers for ages. Its job in life is to watch what you're typing and look for typos, punctuation mistakes, grammar errors, and even to let you know what tone you're setting in your writing. Grammarly is a freemium service, and while I could probably benefit from the premium service, the free tier has a lot of benefits. I write my blog posts by starting in Ulysses, where I can write on iPad or Mac and still use Text Expander. When I've got a first draft complete, I copy the markdown text over to the awesome Mars Edit. From there, I add in my images with captions and do my final-ish edits. Then I push my post to podfeed.com. Once the post is in WordPress on my site, I wait for Grammarly in the browser to go through the text and put thick red underlines on all of my errors. I like using Grammarly because a simple hover over a red line reveals the correction Grammarly is suggesting. If I agree with her, and she's usually right, I only have to click the correction to accept it. When I disagree with her, which is usually because it's a term she doesn't quite understand, I can click the dismiss option so the red line goes away. If Grammarly is in a good mood, I can sometimes add an unfamiliar word to her dictionary for my account. But sometimes she doesn't offer me that option, even when I'm logged into the service. I've never figured out why she's moody that way. Now, you might be asking yourself, why don't just depend on the built-in spell check in macOS? There's a a few reasons why. I'm not sure what's causing this, but lately, the built-in tool is wrong more and more often on really simple rules. For example, as I was writing up this article, the built-in tool told me that I had used the incorrect version of your versus your. I was using the contraction for you are, but it wanted me to use your, Y-O-U-R. I wish I knew why macOS's spelling check is getting worse. More importantly, I get so much more help from Grammarly than simple spell check. 
Grammar and punctuation are key features for me. It catches doubled words, it catches extra spaces, and punctuation is another important feature of Grammarly. It puts in commas I've forgotten and removes the ones I mistakenly add. I suspect at the end of every post it's a zero-sum game on this comma issue, and every time she makes a comma-related suggestion, I realize she's right. You'd think I'd start learning to put them incorrectly after a while, but you'd be wrong. Heck, she found an extra comma in this very paragraph I'm, I'm talking about right now. Now, Grammarly and I don't always agree, but she's also quite good at telling me when I should have hyphenated a word or when I hyphenated unnecessarily. There's one problem Grammarly has that happens from time to time when I'm using the WordPress interface in my browser. Occasionally, and I can't find the root cause for this, the red underlines aren't under the correct word or words that she's trying to correct. I'll hover and it'll be referring to word on the line above or below where the underline occurred. Normally I can tell what she means, but recently this has been happening where the underlines are so far off from, from where the perceived error was that I couldn't figure out what she was trying to correct. I really needed Grammarly to work though. I depend on it. I remembered that years ago, I had downloaded and installed the standalone Grammarly app for the desktop. I desperately needed Grammarly to work on this particular blog post that I was working on, and I wondered, well, maybe the standalone app could help me. I figured I could copy the text from my blog post, yes, this would be the fourth copy of it, and paste it into the Grammarly app and then put it back on the blog after the corrections had been made. When I downloaded the desktop app for Mac from Grammarly.com, I discovered that it has changed a lot since I last used it, and it has way more capability and it's much more useful than ever it was before. As before, you can use the Grammarly app as a web app and write directly into it, but the new Grammarly desktop app integrates with all text entry capable apps on your Mac. Remember how I said I start in Ulysses, then I move to Mars Edit, and then to web, and only then could I use Grammarly? With the desktop app installed, now Grammarly checks my spelling, grammar, and punctuation in Ulysses and Mars Edit while I'm typing. Now, while being nagged while I'm typing might slow me down a little bit, the finishing part of writing a blog post will be much faster, and that's often what takes me the longest. All that moving of the text around and checking and rechecking what I've written is a lot of waste. Grammarly is checking what I'm writing as I go now, so there shouldn't be any errors of substance by the time I push the post to the blog. This might also lighten the load for Sandy, who checks every blog post of mine and usually finds several mistakes. What if you've got an app on your Mac for which it makes no sense to have Grammarly check your spelling? For example, I certainly wouldn't want Grammarly poking your nose into my coding applications. While you're typing in any app, you'll see a little floating icon nearby. If you click on the icon and then set the settings gear, from there you'll have the option to block the app you're currently using from being checked by Grammarly. What if you're working hard to hammer out a tough concept and you're having trouble getting your wording exactly the way you want it, but Grammarly's red underlines keep distracting you? It turns out you can tell her to hush and just leave you alone for 30 minutes in that same settings gear menu I talked about. The floating Grammarly icon has another purpose. If she's found some problems, there will be a number in the icon designating how many things are left that she thinks you should correct. It's even color-coded by what kind of problems she's found. For example, at one point while I was writing up this article, she found four places she suggested the removal of unnecessary words like actually, and three true errors in punctuation and grammar. The circle is partially blue for the suggestions and red for the true errors. When you fix all of the problems she's found, that number will clear. The bottom line is I've been using Grammarly for a long time and having it everywhere in every app is making my writing more accurate no matter where I'm writing. 
My tweets aren't typo-filled. My Slack messages make more sense. And even my emails are better written. If you don't like someone peering over your shoulder and telling you when you made a mistake, you might hate Grammarly. But remember, you can tell her to leave you be for 30 minutes when she gets on your nerves. The late, great Tim Verporten used to love a menu bar app that did one thing and did it well. I've got a menu bar app that does 23 unique things, and it does almost all of them well. It's called OneSwitch from Fireball Studio. OneSwitch is kind of a funny name for an app with up to 23 switches. I think the name means you get one switch at your fingertips to do just that one thing quickly. OneSwitch is available with your setup subscription, or you can buy a license for $5. If you want to license it for multiple Macs, you can get two licenses for $8, or a family pack of five for $17. They've even got a free seven-day trial of OneSwitch. When you first install OneSwitch, you'll see eight switches in the drop-down from your menu bar. I'll get into how to see more than eight, but let's walk through these first eight to see if any of them solve a problem for you. I didn't test every single switch with voiceover, by the way, but I was able to toggle on the switches that I tried. As you hear about in this article, there are often settings within a switch accessed via downward chevron, and unfortunately, I was not able to access that chevron with voiceover. If you're really interested in this application, you might want to check in with the developers to see if they could just go add that one, uh, those little dropdowns, because it is important to the functionality of the software. And since pretty much everything else works, I think it'd be a worthwhile effort. Keep in mind that most of the switches in OneSwitch perform functions that you can do on your Mac through other means. So there's no real magic in most of these. But OneSwitch gives you instant access to the switches you mo use most often instead of having to go dig through system preferences or no arcane keyboard shortcuts. Okay, with all that preamble, let's start talking about the switches, the first eight that come with OneSwitch. If you want to take a screenshot or show your desktop in a video screen share, it's nice to be able to hide your messy desktop icons. The first switch is called Hide Desktop Icons, and it does exactly that. Files, folders, and even mounted volumes all simply disappear. Now, I think it's also restarting the Finder when it does this maneuver, because any open Finder windows will briefly fade out and then come back. The next switch is called Dark Mode, and it does just what it says on the tin. It's a quick toggle for Dark Mode. By default, this is a manual switch, which is the way I personally prefer it, because I normally like Light Mode, and I only occasionally want Dark Mode. But if you click the little downward chevron next to the switch, you get some more options. You can select auto change from sunrise to sunset or have dark mode enabled from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. If you want a different schedule, you'll also see an option for going into settings. This opens preferences for one switch where you can set your own schedule. Now, I don't quite know why you'd want a switch that had a schedule because then what do you need the switch for, right? But it's in there if you want it that way. I like it just to switch manually, so I can simply go, I want dark mode right now, and I want it to go back to light mode. Over the years, I've seen many menu bar apps dedicated to one function, keep my Mac awake. I'm pretty sure they're all a graphical user interface for the terminal command caffeinate. I like the terminal as much as the next woman, but if you need this function often, an easily accessible switch could be quite useful. Instead of dedicating an entire menu bar item slot in our already filled menu bars, if you use one switch, you can have a keep away switch in your dropdown of switches. By default, keep awake stays on indefinitely, but if you hover over it, you'll see the handy dandy downward chevron again, which reveals more options. 
You can set it to five different time lengths from five minutes to five hours, and even choose to keep your Mac awake when the lid is closed. Now, I have a confession to make. I hear all the time about people using their Mac notebooks plugged into secondary displays and having the Mac in clamshell mode, meaning the lid closed. And I've always wondered, how do they keep the Mac awake when they do that? I imagine there's a toggle somewhere in the system for this, but I've never thought to ask where it is. Now with Keep Awake in one switch, I don't have to know. The next switch isn't going to change the world, but if you like to turn your screensaver on when you walk away from your computer, or maybe you like to watch it while you're on a telephone call, or when you just want to think, one switch has a switch for that. I don't use any Bluetooth headphones with my Mac, but I know it's something other people like to do. One switch has a switch to connect or disconnect your headphones to your Mac. I tested with AirPods Pro and Beats Fit Pro, and the Headphones Connect switch worked reasonably well. I say reasonably well for a couple of reasons. Headphones Connect reported originally that my Beats Fit Pro had 0% battery when I had just taken them out of the charging case. Even though it got the battery level wrong, the switch successfully connected them to my Mac. Now, when I tested the AirPods Pro, it showed the correct battery status, left and right independently, but it took a few tries to get them to connect, and it said they weren't responding. All right, well, at this point, I could see both pairs of headphones in the list in Headphones Connect. I tried to connect to the Beats Fit Pro again, and I got that same non-responsive error that I got with the AirPods Pro. But then I tried it again, and it worked perfectly, and the battery started reporting flawlessly on the Beats Fit Pro. From my lengthy experience with Bluetooth devices, I would suggest that the intermittent success I experienced was not the fault of one switch, but rather Bluetooth itself. In any case, if you like to switch on and off the connection to your headphones, you may like the Headphones Connect switch. In the Customize Preference section for Headphones Connect, you can choose from several playful icons to represent your different headphones. I thought that was really fun. With the advent of focus modes in macOS and iOS, I have to click three or four times to turn off all of my notifications. I have to click on Control Center, then on Do Not Disturb. Then I have to choose a focus mode with the third click and then tell it how long do I not want to be disturbed. I really miss being able to click on the crescent moon icon and instantly toggle Do Not Disturb. Well, it's not quite as easy as that, but one switch includes a switch called Do Not Disturb. It does take two clicks, one to open the menu bar up and one to toggle the switch, but it doesn't require nearly as much cognitive load because it's pretty simple visually. I do have trouble telling when Do Not Disturb is on versus off in Control Center. Does a white background with a slightly purple dark moon mean that's off or is it on? Well, the Do Not Disturb switch in one switch is super obvious. It's like on or off. That's it. It's a switch. You can see it. Now, I was suspicious that the Do Not Disturb switch in one switch might not be able to do it. And could it be, how could it bypass the need to deal with all these focus modes? But I tested it and it works. It does what it says on the tin, as Bart would say. There is a downside, though. It's not the same as setting a focus mode to Do Not Disturb, because it doesn't change you to Do Not Disturb on all of your devices. I really like that feature, so I'm going to have to think about where this will be useful. Now, I am not a big fan of Night Shift and True Tone, but if you are, you'll love that one switch comes with independent switches for both. If you hover over Night Switch, I'll get that yet right, if you hover over Night Shift, you can enable it to auto-change from sunrise to sunset, just like if you drill all the way down into the display's controls in System Preferences. If you want to change the color temperature, you will still have to go into System Preferences. 
Now that covers the eight default set of switches in detail. But if you click the Customize button at the bottom of the One Switch menu, you can add 15 more switches. Now this might sound like a really bad idea because this list is gonna get harder to look through, but in the Customize Preferences, you have two tools to save you from that problem. The great thing about One Switch is that it has so many switches. There's bound to be some you like and some that I like. We can toggle on the switches we enjoy having at our fingertips and toggle off the ones we don't need. Also in the Customize panel, every switch has a little hamburger menu to the right of it. This allows, I shouldn't call it a hamburger menu, it's a hamburger icon button. This allows the user to drag the switches into the order that makes the most sense to them. Being able to tailor this menu bar app with the switches we need in order in the order we need them is what makes one switch really shine because mine is gonna look completely different from yours. While we're taking an intermission from describing the switches, let me tell you about another thing you can do in preferences. If you're a keyboard junkie, you can record shortcut keys to any of the switches you enable. Now I wondered about that and I tested to see if you can have a keyboard shortcut for a switch that's not enabled. And while you can add the shortcut to a, di a disabled switch, it doesn't do anything unless the switch is enabled and therefore visible in the dropdown. Now let's learn about all of the other switches we can add and perhaps you'll find value in enough of them to make one switch worth that whopping $5 purchase price. One of the harder things to do on a Mac is mute your microphone. While you can open system preferences, go to the audio pane, switch to the input tab, and then click the mute box, that's a lot of faffing about when you're trying to mute your dog barking during a Zoom call. Luckily, one switch comes with a mute microphone switch. When you toggle this switch, you get a temporary little notification in the bottom right of your screen telling you that you've muted or unmuted your mic. I promise you, your fellow video and audio teleconference callers will thank you for muting your coughs, dogs, parakeets, small children, and trucks passing by outside your window. Now, as an experiment, I added a keyboard shortcut to the mute microphone switch, and then I added that keystroke to my stream deck, and it works perfectly. Before Elgato came out with the Wave XLR mic interface that has a mute button on it, I was on a desperate search for an interface with a mic mute. I would have loved this solution. Now, first, I thought the next switch really understood me. It really got me. It's called music. When I toggle it on, it toggles itself right off again. For someone who doesn't listen to music, it was functioning perfectly. Well, the trick to using the, mu the music switch is that you need to have Apple Music up with the song selected first. Only then will toggling the switch play the song and stop it again. Now, music has a mini player that lets you minimize the music app's main window, but it does take up some space. Perhaps having a music toggle switch and a dropdown from your menu bar would give you back even that small window's worth of space. I'm not sure that's super useful, but it's there. Now, at some point in your Mac using journey, you'll find that you need to find a hidden file on your Mac. Hidden files have names that start with a dot and are often referred to as dot files. If you know what dot files are and why you might want to see them, then the next switch in one switch might be of use. It's called Show Hidden Files, and it toggles their visibility on and off in the Finder. It works reliably, and it can be quite handy. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the keystroke built into macOS to do the very same thing. With the Finder window visible, hold down Command, Shift, period, and you'll toggle visibility of these same hidden files back off and on again. If keystrokes you use so rarely are hard to remember, Show Hidden Files in one switch will be handy for you. When I walk away from my Mac, I like to put my displays to sleep to save energy. 
I've set up the sleep corner using system preferences, but it seems harder than it should be to accurately hit that corner. It seems I invariably bump the cursor right after the screen goes to sleep and I wake it up again. Luckily, one switch comes with a switch called Display Sleep, and I'm finding that much more reliable than trying to use my sleep corner. I wish macOS made it easier to select from a big list of screen resolutions. I'm sure most people are happy with the simplified choices in System Preferences Displays. It gives us the default for display, and you can toggle it to scaled. From there, you can choose from up to five total options. They're dumbed down too. They range from larger text to more space. If you want to go wild, you can hover over the five options to actually see the resolution numbers. Again, I acknowledge that for the vast majority of humans, this is a good approach. But for nerds, it's not good enough. I was pleased to see that one switch has a screen resolution switch, but I'm afraid it doesn't work as I would expect. In its initial configuration, if you click the chevron, it gives you quick access to the same five screen resolutions as system preferences. So far, so good. You can also open settings for screen resolution, and you'll see a giant list of optional screen resolutions, and you can check a checkbox next to each one of those you want listed in the switch. Unfortunately, they don't really work. I added about 10 resolutions using the checkboxes, checkbox settings for screen resolution, but only one of them showed up in the screen resolution switch for my MacBook Pro. Now, it's possible the other resolutions wouldn't render properly on that display, but I shouldn't be able to choose them if that's true, or I should be given some indication why they're not going to show up. The same thing happened when I tried to add resolutions for my Pro Display XDR to that screen resolution switch. If I don't add the four resolutions that are standard in display preferences for XDR, then I don't get any options at all under this switch. I use the screen resolution tool inside Parallels Toolbox, which gives me access to tons of new screen resolution options, and I will not be giving it up for the switch in one switch. Let's cleanse our palettes next with a switch everyone needs. It's called Screen Clean. When you toggle this switch on, your internal and external displays will go black. In the middle of the screen, you'll see a little animated brush cleaning off your screen, and below that, it will say Screen Cleaning Mode with a click to exit button. At the bottom of the screen, it will also say Your Keyboard is also locked. This is something I've wanted for a very long time. I can't stand a dirty keyboard or a fingerprinty screen, and now with one switch, I can stop both from reacting while I clean them without having to shut down my Mac or power off my keyboards. While Screen Clean locks both your screen and your keyboard for cleaning, you can independently lock just your keyboard using one switch. Our screens don't get dirty as quickly as our keyboards with our grubby little Cheeto-covered fingers, so the lock keyboard switch is great for your more frequent cleaning needs. Now you have no excuse for not cleaning your keyboard regularly. The lock screen switch is not the same as the screen clean switch. Instead, it's a quick way to lock your screen, requiring any user to log, use login credentials to your Mac to look at what's on it. We already have a lock screen option under the Apple logo, and we can use Control-Command-Q to invoke it, but if you prefer all of your switches in one list, maybe lock screen under one switch would be helpful for you. If you're a developer who uses Xcode, a common issue is that the cache needs to be cleaned. Changes you've made in your code on a website won't often be recognized by Xcode until you clean the cache. It can also help to clean the cache if you're experiencing frequent crashes. If these problems plague you, one switch has an Xcode cache clean switch. I'm guessing the developers wrote that one to scratch their own itch. Now, it's pretty easy to empty the trash by right-clicking on the dock icon for trash, but it might be easier to use the switch built into one switch. 
Assigning a keyboard shortcut to empty the trash would make it even faster. It's an unusual switch because it stays off by default and shows you how many items are in your trash. When you tap it to toggle the empty trash switch on, it turns on briefly, and as soon as the trash is empty, it turns itself off again. Makes perfect sense, but it's unusual. I don't know why this bothers me so much, but I find it incredibly tedious to drag my cursor all the way up to a disk on my desktop, right-click on it, and then choose Eject Disk before I have to unplug my laptop from my dock. If I've got more than one drive connected, I would lose my mind doing it that way. In Parallels Toolbox, I immediately added the Eject Disk icon to a permanent position on my menu bar. If you don't have Parallels Toolbox, though, add the Eject Disk switch to your OneSwitch menu bar app. Now, the first time I ran Eject Disk, it was very aggressive about trying to eject things. It was asking me if it was okay to eject all kinds of volumes, including hidden volumes controlled by macOS and my two internal volumes on my Mac. Eject Disk Preferences has an exclude list to better control this behavior. Quite oddly, it had pre-populated that list with slash volume slash bootcamp. That confuses me because, according to Apple, bootcamp requires a Mac with an Intel processor, and I'm using an Apple Silicon Mac. I did a clean install on this Mac, so I certainly didn't put it there. I suspect this entry is pre-populated by default, but it's curious that they specifically excluded this one possible drive and not the other hidden volumes, such as the recovery volume. I added my two internal volumes to the exclude list, and since then, using the eject disk does not try to mess around with any other hidden volumes. I have no idea what problem this next switch solves, but if you can think of a use case, I would really like to know. This next switch is called Empty Pasteboard. So if you copy something, and then you toggle the Empty Pasteboard switch on, just like the Empty uh, Trash switch, it turns on and then off again. And then if you use Command-V to paste, nothing happens because the pasteboard is empty. But if you don't want to paste, why don't you just don't paste? And if you want to paste something different than what was in the pasteboard, don't you have to go copy it anyway, which would replace the pasteboard? Like I said, I have no idea what this one is for. It must be for something, but I just can't think of it. On the Mac, you can use Command-H to hide your current window or go to the menu bar and click on the name of your application, and in the dropdown, you'll see Hide and the application name. If you throw the Option key into the mix, so you do Command-Option-H, you'll hide all windows except the one you have in focus. But what if you want to hide the current window and all the other windows? If you've got a trackpad in System Preferences, Trackpad, More Gestures, you can enable Show Desktop by spreading your thumb and three fingers apart. All of your currently visible windows will slide to the, slide to the sides, top, and bottom and kind of get out of your way so you can temporarily see your desktop. Reverse the gesture and they come right back to where they were. Any windows that were hidden when you did this stay hidden. Now, if you don't do this gesture often, it's not an easy one to remember. In one switch, you can enable Hide Windows. It doesn't do exactly the same thing as the Show Desktop gesture, though. It's more like if you executed the Hide Others command followed by the Hide This App command. All windows become completely hidden. Now, the downside, or maybe it's as designed, uh, side of this is when you toggle Hide Windows back on, or I guess that'd be off, when you toggle Hide Windows off, every single window becomes visible whether or not it was hidden when you started. So if you had, say, Safari was hidden, but you had Apple Notes up, if you do hide windows and then unhide windows, both Safari and Notes would come back. 
I find that having all the windows coming back like that rather jarring because I hide app windows intentionally. But that's definitely a personal preference. It might work exactly the way you like it, and that's why you get to toggle that switch on, and I don't have to. Now, the dock in macOS has two distinct display options, show all the time or hide until you hover over it. If you find hovering annoying, you would naturally turn hiding off. But once in a while, you might want to hide your dock, just temporarily. One switch has you covered with a simple hide dock switch. Select the switch once, the dock disappears. Select it again, and it comes right back. As you might suspect, the hide dock switch is actually toggling the hiding feature on and off, so when the dock is hidden by the switch, you can still hover over it to see it temporarily. If adding a switch for something like this seems like too much effort, you can always right-click on the vertical separator in the dock and toggle hiding off and on from that pop-up menu. All right, that is 23 switches, and I think that one switch is a terrific addition to my menu bar because it has several switches that do that one thing I really need. Even if you only heard one or two switches that blew your dress up, remember, it's only five bucks. If you have a setup subscription, you can get it for what feels like free. Check out one switch at fireball.studio. I meet such terrific people through the podcasts, and one of those people is Sean Peterson. This week, he wrote me a lovely note with a question and some fun stories about how long he's been listening. He illustrated his point by sending me two photos, both of him and his son. The two photos showed how long he's been listening by how much older his son is now than when he started listening. In his email, he asked for some help with a tech problem, and he explained that it was his son who said, Ask Allison, she'll know. I thought all of this was lovely enough, but then I got a notification that he actually sent, this was before he sent his question to me, he became our latest Patreon supporter. He started a very generous donation to the show by going to podfeed.com slash Patreon and choosing an amount to donate that showed the level of value he gets from the content we create here at the Podfeed Podcast. And he's actually been uh, on Chit Chat Across the Pond. If you want to be lovely like Sean by showing me how long you've been listening or by becoming a Patreon supporter, that would be lovely. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchats. How are you doing today, Bart? I am doing good. I had to go find my sunscreen today. I found it. <laughs> Once a year, whether you need it or not, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, and the factor of 50, because I'm Irish and it seems like a big number, and that's probably a good thing. I have no <laughs> idea if that's a good thing, but 50 was a big number. Now, here's a tip you might not know. Did you know that it doesn't last forever? Like, if that's the same bottle you've been using since 1972, that's probably not going to work for it. No, since since last summer. I think it's still good. I'll check the best. I'll check the bottle, actually, to make sure, but I think it's still good. Oh, good, good. All right. So what kind of mayhem did the the internets give us today? Pretty quiet, all in all. The scroll bar was pretty short, but we do... I I picked out some two deep dives to to stick into. But on the whole, it's a low volume, but... We won't be short on on things to talk about. Uh, a little bit of catch-up first, follow-up on feedback. Like you know, the European Union doesn't do things quickly, but it, it does sort of do them relentlessly. Uh, the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act are now one step away from becoming officially law. They have been passed by the Parliament and they now need a formal signature by the Council of Ministers. So they are on track for coming into force by the end of the year as expected. So, All righty. Not very exciting, but, you know, 
worth mentioning. Marching on. Indeed. In social media land, only two notable changes caught my... Three notable changes caught my eye, since I can't count bullet points. Um, <laughs> there is some... It's interesting. I put in two links to this story because the two headlines capture the two different ways in which the same story is being covered. From the Mac Observer we get, TikTok claims strong data security, still planning to improve it further. From iMore we get, TikTok employees in China can see your data, company admits. (laughs) They're describing the same piece of news. Okay. So whichever pair of shades you put on, it... TikTok have said they are going to make their privacy better. It is true that their employees in China can see all the data. Do with that as you wish. But they are the two they are the two most extreme readings of what we know. Okay. And they claim strong data security, so there you go, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um and are they still I believe they're still on target to be moving, at least for the US users, their data centers to the US? Yes, but the Chinese true. employees will still have access, so it's a bit of a okay. The servers a, a will be in the distinction US. without a difference. Kind of, yes. Almost a European Union style approach to things. Could it change though whether the Chinese government could demand the data to do something with it? But I guess if they've got access to it already, that difficult. Yeah, yeah. difficult to know. Hypothetically, it could. Right, they could do a Microsoft and stand up to their own government. Like Microsoft did yeah. when, with the Irish data centers. Right. That's but different than sh- with the, with the uh, uh, yeah, Chinese government. No. Yeah, I don't think you say no to the CCP. Uh, I don't think that's how it works. That's how you end up disappearing. Was it the Jack something, the famous businessman who just disappeared Jack one day? Jack oh, Ma. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Like, really, there's no one too big to just disappear. No. Which is scary. Ugh. Anyway, moving I actually on know someone who has disappeared. So, uh, oh, father of a friend of mine. So, yeah, yeah. he undisappeared. That's the good news. After okay, five good. years, good. Ooh, yeah, wow. it's quite a gap. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of reminded me of the plot points in uh, For All Mankind. They sure as heck aged um, Alexi to, to look like he'd suffered while he was away. Anyway, yeah. Um. The what may be the final chapter in Meta's terrible exploration of becoming the master of world currency, their crypto coin, which they renamed Novi, uh, is being killed. Okay, so it would appear that the current crypto chaos has been enough to kill off their ideas of world domination of cryptocurrency, which is probably for the better. And I may have smiled when I saw the headline. <laughs> Uh, surprising no one. Now, from a, okay, so from a security and privacy point of view, the obvious danger posed by Elon Musk taking over Twitter and turning it into a digital Wild West has passed. From a legal court point of view, the story is only just beginning, but I don't care about legal court points of view. So from my point of view, this is done and they're going to be arguing about money for a very long time to come. But that is someone else's problem. Axios, I reckon, report on that. Yeah, it's not really uh, uh, Apple news, but it's uh, it's certainly big news. I he just seems to like stirring things up and disrupting things, and I and I'm glad to see Elon Musk is going to get back to doing crazy things like taking us to Mars and making fully autonomous vehicles. I would like him to focus on those things. Yes, please. Yeah, maybe maybe actually finish the self drive that you've already sold to lots of people. 
<laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, I don't know whether this uh, fits into this category very much, okay. but uh, one of the things that was annoying about the Oculus Quest 2 was that they said you had to have a Facebook account, and yeah. uh, they have changed that policy. You have to have a meta account. Again, I'm going to use my distinction, distinction without a difference. difference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it all depends it, on how much they sell and share the data, and if it's still the same company, probably the same thing. I guess it's it's ha- it's different in one respect. So with a Facebook account, there are two sides looking at the data. There's a public side of your profile, and there's what they see about you. Whereas mm-hmm. with the Meta account, it's only what they see. There is no public profile. So well, that is different. Will there be, though, as they add social interactions in the uh, in the Metaverse? As of right now, what they are, for my, I listened to uh, Rennie Ritchie try to describe the difference, and my takeaway from that description was that it, there is no social media, there is no, like, there's no meta forward slash username to go look at a person's profile. Oh, okay. Okay. But but what they're collecting about you is still there, which is probably exactly. the scarier part. So that's what okay. I'm saying. Half I the same. I see what you're saying. Right, right, right. Yeah. Half the, the same, part. half different. Okay. Uh, so that then brings us to our first deep dive, and I'm, I have these very much in the order of we'll get the most difficult one out of the way first, and then we can do the opposite of eating our vegetables, although I like vegetables. Um, I, we are a security and privacy segment here, and I think we need to have a very serious conversation about security and privacy because of a US Supreme Court decision that initially sounds like it doesn't involve a computer in any shape, size, or form. I'm talking about the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which is quite clearly not an IT law. But it has really changed the reality on the ground. So for 50 years-ish, a little bit less, there was a federal right for Americans who are pregnant to choose how to manage that pregnancy. And now every state can make up their own rules, and some of those states are heading towards some quite scary rules And there is now a legitimate, everything's in chaos, so we don't know what's going to happen, but there are legitimate grounds to worry about two possibilities. The first is that a state could subpoena any corporation that holds menstrual tracking data or data about pregnancies to target people who appear to be pregnant and then not be pregnant, but not have given birth. Right. That would include the very large number of people who are just really unfortunate and have a miscarriage. We don't talk about it as a society. It, it's it's really hushed up, and I don't understand why. So we don't realize it, how... It's 10 to 15% of pregnancies end with a miscarriage. Actually, th- I just noticed my show notes developed a statistic that I didn't put there. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and, that and, is... and, and remember, there are states that have laws about basically vigilante laws that say yes. that if someone gets an, uh, pursues an abortion, you can be paid, I believe it was $10,000 yes. to catch them. So this, the coll- collection of this data, selling of this data on someone's menstrual cycle that shows they stopped having a period and then started, started again. again without a baby showing up could be something that could be subpoenaed. Right, you could basically end up as a criminal suspect for suffering a very unpleasant medical condition. Right. Which is horrible. So that is definitely a genuine fear. The other fear is that states could subpoena corporations that hold search histories for users doing searches related to abortion or similar terms. 
And this is broader than just going into a search box and typey typey into a text entry. This would also include speaking to digital assistants if those digital assistants retain logs. So um. they're two very legitimate fears that we need to think about. We also need to understand why there's a lot of this tracking going on. Because it isn't going on for, well, it's different nefarious reasons. It's going on because we have to follow the money. The amount of times I say this, we have to follow the money. So there are a lot of corporations who are very well incentivized to track information that can help deduce pregnancy because expecting parents spend a lot of money. Right, That makes them really valuable to data brokers who can sell them to advertisers, marketplaces, and retailers. They're people expecting a child need things. People who sell things want access to them. So there is a very strong incentive to figure out who's pregnant and to store that and sell that information. And that's not being kept from an intention of spying on people, but if that information is subpoenaed, danger. The other thing is that a lot of non-traditional search engines will actually keep a history of everything you say to that speaker or whatever so they can build up a profile and sell it to the data brokers to help basically pad out what they're selling to the data brokers. So that is something to be aware of. If you speak to the A-lady, there is a record. You can go in, I believe you can go into your account and actually see everything that you've said in the last six months or something like that. So it's there to be subpoenaed. Now, the other thing you need to understand... So, so it, with the A-Lady, it's stored on the uh, on the servers, not yes. locally? Okay. Correct. So you can actually That's go into your account. That's what you mean by account. it's there to yeah. be subpoenaed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, hypothetically, it could be subpoenaed. Now, there will be all sorts of legal challenges to those subpoenas, but do you want to take a guess as to how that pans out? No, I don't. Yeah. Toss a coin. Um, the other thing to understand is that in America, it is completely legal for your internet service provider to track what you do online and sell that data to data brokers. They are not breaking any sort of laws by doing that. So that means that you actually can't just surf freely from your house or from your own mobile device because the people carrying that data have every right to record that data and sell it onto data brokers. Now, that sounds horrific. It is also true that there are financial incentives working exactly the other way because there are companies whose business models are oriented around selling you, the user, things. And those companies are incentivized to protect you, the user, because you, the user, are the customer. So those companies are very strongly incentivized to not store data, to do end-to-end encryption, so they physically can't access the data if they're prevented with a subpoena. So those are the kind of companies you should be entrusting with your sensitive data like this, not because they're somehow good companies, because the same motives that drive some companies to do all the wrong things are driving those companies to do what is in your interest. It's not moral or immoral, it's amoral. Follow the money. It's just follow the money. So how do we turn all of that into practical advice? Well, it is, there, are like, there are so many reasons you want to track cycle data. That is, that is an important healthcare metric that is every bit as important as how many steps you do. In fact, 20 million times more important than how many steps you do. So no one is saying, oh, I know, let's just not track menstrual cycles as if that's an answer to anything. It isn't. So don't let this kind of thing scare you away from doing important health measurement of yourself. So then you need 
okay, where do I store it? Well, pen and paper, I guess, is safe, but that sounds like an awful lot of faffing about, and that doesn't seem very realistic to me. So you want to use apps that either store the data locally or use end-to-end encryption so that the syncing service can't see what they're syncing. The syncing service is basically syncing, syncing what looks to them like random gibberish. Uh, it's only on your end devices that it can be decrypted. And I, to some extent, I think people are going to have to depend on charities, uh, basically women's organizations in America, to help guide on this. But one thing I can say is that Apple's health APIs are designed so that Apple cannot see your data. So the absolute single piece of advice I am prepared to stand over is that if you use the cycle tracking feature right within Apple's health app, that is safe. Likewise, I'm going to add one you... other one, uh, Bart. Oh, please, um, please. I was, they were talking about this very thing on the uh, evening news, the fact that this data can be used to track you and possibly prosecute you. And uh, they gave a specific app uh, as a recommendation. It's called Yuki, E-U-K-I. And reading from their uh, their App Store preview, it says, Yuki is not like other health tracking apps. Your data is yours. Yuki is designed to ensure no one else has access to the information you log, search for, or view. You don't even have to provide any personal information to use the app. When you enter the app, it lives. the data lives only on your phone, not in the cloud. That sound, they're, they're singing the right tune. Yeah. So, I mean, everyone check it out yourself. But this is this is a recommendation that that was uh, followed in some way here. Yeah. Um. So that is the first piece of concrete advice: is to make sure that you're using an app that keeps the data local or syncs it through a safe sync service like Apple Health, which is specifically engineered that Apple cannot tell what you sync. Therefore, you can send them five million subpoenas, and they cannot hand over what they do not have. You can't subpoena Apple to hand over a pink teapot orbiting Saturn. It's not there. The second concrete piece of advice is never to use a smart assistant that retains your search history to search for anything pregnancy related whatsoever. So I know, because Apple have released the details, that Siri does not retain the search history in a way that can be tied to a human being. So while Apple does collect data for the purposes of making Siri less dumb, it is disconnected and not reconnectable to human beings. So that means they can't be subpoenaed for it other than to give a vague idea that someone somewhere on planet Earth searched for this thing. So that is different to how we know a lady works. So we do live with the penalty of uh, Siri not being quite as good as, as Google is at finding and, you know, tailoring your results. But this is the flip side of it. This is the benefit side, right? Correct. Yeah, exactly. And it's all swings and roundabouts. It's all trade-offs. And that, that is a very distinct trade-off. And you can still have the other speakers. It's just that when you're doing something that you're like, I don't really want this to be subpoenable, not because you're doing anything wrong, but because we're now in a situation where doing the right thing can still end up causing you great trouble. Well, then just don't use that assistant for that. I know a lot of people who have an array of assistants you know, and they'll, they'll use one for one thing and others for another thing. And some of them like to uh, test them against each other, see who's quickest at figuring out what whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. Very similar advice then for point three. Always use private browser or incognito mode for pregnancy-related searches or browsing. So if you're going to search for pregnancy stuff, you're going to obviously follow the links. So do all of that in incognito or private browser mode. 
And obviously, now, don't doesn't, log in. That doesn't save you if your ISP is selling your data, though, correct? That correct. That is not the problem that solves. That is solving a different problem, which is Google or whoever having the data to be subpoenaed. Right. The final piece of advice solves the problem you just gave, which is always do that kind of work over a trustworthy VPN, i.e. a VPN that does not monetize itself by selling data. And you've talked a lot. A lot. There, there is a recent episode you can insert a link to right here because you did a lot of homework on this. Yeah, PIA, consider... Uh, per, well, I can never remember what the acronym stands for. But yeah, because PIA we all know is. what we think it stands for, but it isn't that. <laughs> Private internet access, I think. Yes. So, yes. So, basically, apps that keep stuff local or sync end-to-end encrypted, avoid smart assistants that have a history, do your browsing in private or incognito mode, and use a VPN. So, that is the best I can do at giving practical advice. Um, I will throw in a piece of opinion to say that a, a big issue here is that we're having a collision between a perfect storm of a lack of privacy protections and an erosion of civil liberties, which are now meeting each other, because the companies who are collecting this data were afraid of being subpoenaed, did not collect it for the purpose of invading anyone's civil liberties. They collected it for the purpose of making money. But that has now collided with this danger of subpoenas, and now we have a giant big mess here. And there's only one fix. We got to this mess slowly. The only way out of this mess is slowly, slowly catchy monkey. And that means... Everyone needs to engage with civic society, which means that you need to tell the people who are elected what you think, the people who want to be what you think, and the regulators what you think. And you absolutely positively have to go to the ballot box and basically do your civic duty because otherwise nothing changes. And I'm now going to get off my soapbox. So I really did some soul searching on whether to to open up a little bit here and we discussed it and Bart and I decided that this would be uh, appropriate. I'm going to tell you a little personal story here. In 1989, Steve and I very much wanted to have another child. Lindsay had been born, but we wanted a second child. And we were delighted when a doctor's blood test confirmed that I had indeed conceived a child. Now, uh, when Lindsay was born, I immediately, or when I got pregnant with Lindsay, I, t- I told everybody immediately that I was uh, that I was pregnant. But after I had the baby, I found out exactly how often it can end in miscarriage. So instead of telling anyone, we waited a full three months before telling anyone. And so the, uh, I announced it to everybody I knew. I went to work. I told everybody. And the day after I announced the happy news, we had an ultrasound performed. Well, it turned out that while I had indeed conceived the cell never divided. My body had built a home for a baby who would never exist. And I had to undergo an abortion on a day I had expected to see my baby on on an ultrasound. So it was a horrific day. Wow. Now, let's think about this. Under many state laws, aborting a conceived child at 12 weeks would be an illegal medical procedure. That is where we are in the United States right now. So I'm not entirely sure what they would have decided to do with my body under these laws, would I have had to let this non-baby rot inside me until what? Um, even if they did allow the procedure, having people come after me legally subpoenaing data like this because of data they harvested from a period tracking app to find out why a baby was never born 
on the worst day of my life. I mean, I, I'm, I just, I can't even imagine. I don't, yeah. So take this privacy stuff very seriously, what Bart's been talking about. It's, um, this is important. I'm reminded, actually, we just there was a recent story of an American in Malta, and Malta has extremely strict abortion laws, and it was a similar situation where the the pregnancy had come to an end, but it hadn't. It was still in the woman's body. Had left, and in Malta you can't have an abortion, and they actually had to medivac the woman out. Because under Maltese law, she would need to be, quote, on the point of death before it would be legal for them to intervene. <laughs> Even though you know she's going to die from it. Yeah. And in Ireland, the reason we now, we had a referendum on abortion just before the pandemic. And the reason we had it and the reason it passed was because uh, an Indian, a young Indian woman w- had a similar situation, was refused an abortion and died of sepsis. Mm. And her husband channeled his grief into getting this horrific injustice dealt with in Ireland. And we, I'm very proud to say, voted the right way. So we actually approved abortion by popular vote, which is so not... that won't happen again. So that will not happen again. And it's just horrific that it took that tragedy to happen. But I really hope that others can learn from these tragedies instead of being doomed to repeat them. That, that just should, that's not how these things should go. Right. So, so yeah. we went back and forth on this, and, and it is a privacy story. It is a private, yeah. privacy and, and, and personal security story, and that's why we chose to put this in. Yeah, because you don't want to end up having to deal with regulators and courtrooms and stuff when you have this kind of icky stuff going on in life. You have way more going on. You, know, you, you don't need that. You just don't. So just protect your privacy because it's safer that way. Yeah. And good luck. Okay. Ooh, okay, right. Back to our normally scheduled programming. Okay. Uh, we had a big WWDC and Apple told us lots of goodies. And that was last month. And then last week, Apple gave us a few more goodies. Or rather, one more very important goodie that it's good to know it exists, but I hope no one listening to the sound of our voices will need it. So we know that there are, if you throw enough money at any problem, you can do things like get zero-day exploits, and actually attack people's iPhones successfully a la Pegasus and so forth, right? If you're a high enough value target and there's someone with a deep enough pocket going after you, there have been cases where they have successfully gotten into iPhones. And we've said that, you know, ordinary folk like us don't have to worry about it. But the high value targets, your politicians, your government officials, your military officials... Um, high-level industry people, researchers researching certain things, uh, campaigners, civil rights advocates, lawyers representing some people. They're all potentially targets of these deep-pocketed sorts of nation-state-level actors. And we've always said that they're the people being targeted by Pegasus and all of those things, so you don't have to worry about it. But the obvious question is, okay, so those people who do have to worry about it, what can they do about it? And up until now, the answer has generally been iOS is less bad than Android and uh, we just be careful. Like that, I mean, that was it. Like I, I've heard interviews with people working for people like the ACLU and stuff. And they're like, we get asked a really obvious question. OK, great. You told me I'm in danger. Now what? Be careful. That's that's not helpful. 
So Apple have come up with an answer, and it is the classic trade-off of convenience versus security, so that if you are in this target group, you can make a very simple one-click opt-in to trade away a whole bunch of convenience in exchange for a whole bunch of security. You will have a less functional iPhone that is much harder to attack. And the reason this works is simple, because we now know the danger bits, the 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 aspects of iOS that are the most attackable, that have been most often most successfully attacked by attackers. And we know what we can do to protect those. We can basically disable them, prevent access and so forth. But those things aren't in the iPhone for the crack. They're in the iPhone because they make our lives easier. So that's why this becomes a trade-off. So this is a feature that is going to evolve over time, right? It is going to... Apple are going to change what it does as and when we learn more. But they're attacking the problem from two very interesting points of view. So we know the technologies that have proven themselves to be more attackable than others. So we know, for instance, that parsing data written by others is very prone to the kinds of errors that cause remote code execution and stuff like that. How often have PDF readers been the problem, right? Right. So for that reason, if you enable this mode called lockdown mode, your iPhone will not accept attachments other than images and one or two other types on iMessage and email and stuff because that act of processing those attachments is a dangerous, dangerous thing to do inherently. You will not get previews of files and things because the act of generating a preview means you're processing a file someone else sent to you, which means you're running it through a parser and they're dangerous. Oh, okay. Right. So that's okay. why some of these seemingly capricious things are not capricious at all. They're basically avoiding doing things we know are hard. One of the most dangerous types of parsers on planet Earth is the interpreters that make the internet go. The internet is code written by other people executing on your computer. It is JavaScript right. code, HTML and CSS written by other people that your computer or phone is running. So that is very dangerous. So one of the things lockdown mode does is it pairs the internet back by stripping away most of the modern cool shiny features with the exception of websites you explicitly mark as trusted. So you can actually say that I trust Gmail because I want to have an email experience that doesn't suck. But randomly searching the web, the phone will block a whole bunch of APIs. And that does mean that if you get tricked into going to a website like gmool.com instead of gmail.com, your exception won't exist, so the code will be blocked because only the allow-listed sites can use the modern technologies. So it's actually very good. So it's working at a technical level, but it's also working at counteracting the known ways in which humans have been tricked into hacking themselves. So we know social engineering happens. We know they target the squishy organic bit. And we know that one of the most effective ways to get the squishy organic bit to compromise themselves is to trick them into installing a mobile, de- sorry, into installing a configuration profile, which is basically right. a certificate that lets you sideload apps. It's designed for corporations to install private apps, but you can trick people into installing malware that way. The other thing that you can trick people into doing is installing mobile device management. If you enroll your phone in mobile device management, then whoever runs the management server has full power over your phone, not you. So if you enable lockdown mode, it is impossible to install configuration profiles or to enroll the device in MDM. You have to turn off the feature, enroll, and turn it back on. 
Okay, so if I'm uh, in a position to need a lockdown phone, aren't I going to really want a VPN, which requires me to install a profile? Right, so you shields down, install the one VPN that you know you trust, shields up. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so it is basically every time you have to do an install, you're not saying you can't have profiles. You can only install them in a very controlled way where you are proactively saying, I am lowering my shields. I am installing this thing I know I want. I am raising my shields. Okay. So it's much safer to be in that sort of a mode. And again, this is good because these are the ways we know iPhones have been actually attacked. And this is, by the way, I should say, I keep saying iPhones because they are the highest value target, but it's also, it's iOS and the Mac are getting lockdown mode. So that is coming in iOS 16 and Mac, Mac OS Ventura. They're coming oh, this fall. Good. So this feature is going to evolve. So right now, today, Apple say that in messages, most message attachments other than images are blocked and features like link previews are disabled while you're browsing. So if like just-in-time JavaScript compilation is disabled, incoming... Vi- Actually, sorry, there's another thing that I meant to say. Uh, I'm not going to keep reading the list. It's in the show notes. The other thing that can happen to people is they can be the victims of basically internet pylons where you get doxxed online and you literally get thousands of angry people, millions of angry people sending you death threats and your phone just explodes with notifications. When you turn this feature on, incoming invitations and messages are only allowed through if they are from someone whom you have sent something to. So they can't send you an email Hmm. this week and then next week attack you. It's only if you have sent them something. So So not just being in your address book? Not just being in your address book, you have to have actually communicated with them in the last, I think it's 30 days or something like that at the moment. So again, this, wow. this can all be tweaked. But it means that <laughs> I it would really suspect is... that that's going to leave people in a position of going, why haven't I gotten that thing from you, Bob? In which case, once you do that, you will. Oh. <laughs> as long as you email them, not text them. Well, basically, as long as you communicate to them through whatever mechanism is being blocked, hey, Bob, have you, have you been ignoring me? Well, at that point in time, the Bob is allowed through. Okay, okay. So it's actually quite, it's well thought through and they are going to keep tweaking this over time. So this is, this is good. And to prove how serious they are about this, they have added a new layer to their bug bounty program, a new sort of a, an achievement level. If you can break through lockdown mode, you can get a whopping $2 million <laughs> for a bug. Up to. Wow. Up to, right. Depending on wow. how you know how catastrophically of a hack you find that is that is putting your money where your mouth is they really want to make this bulletproof that it it can't be penetrated it'd be really interesting to turn this on and see how much of the web doesn't do anything at all i mean i'm thinking my time shifter clock wouldn't wouldn't work right because it's executing javascript Right, but it's not that it's not allowing any JavaScript. It's not allowing a feature called just-in-time compilation. So just-in-time compilation makes JavaScript run fast. So if you have a JavaScript-based game, that's relying on JIT and stuff like that to make it not suck, to make it not be like JavaScript used to be. Whereas something like your time shifter clock, it's not really a CPU punisher. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, again, it would be interesting to see what, what wasn't there. You know, hmm. it would kind of give you an idea of how much was possibly nefarious, right? Yeah, I mean, possibly nefarious is, is perhaps not quite the right way to look at these things, but they're technologies that that are inherently riskier. And so we choose to block them if we're one of these people who need to worry about these things. 
So on the whole, I think this is a very is a very good move to give people the option to shift the convenience security balance for them without basically Apple's other choice would have been to remove features from everyone, which would have made all of us cranky. <laughs> right. So making this a toggle is very clever. So I, I all in all, fantastic news. Well done, Apple. Uh, action alerts. Uh, one here for a lot of us is that there was a an in-the-wild zero day in Google Chrome. Patchy, <laughs> patchy, patch, patch. And then if you are one of the subset of our listeners who run their own servers, there are two fairly high-profile bugs that have just been patched. There is another Java issue. Um, there is... So Log4j is a common logging platform used by lots of Java apps. Well, there's a similar one called Commons Configuration, which is a really commonly used uh, system for managing config files. So if you're writing an app that needs config files, rather than writing your own logic for processing config files, you just use Commons Configuration. Well, if you do that in your app, you now need to make sure that your app is using the most recent versions of Commons Config. Okay. And then push an update out to your app. The one that's easier to deal with is OpenSSL, patchy, patchy, patch, patch. There are two bugs in OpenSSL. They were very, very easy for the OpenSSL developers to fix. They literally had to put like an if statement in. Like they're literally one line fixes. But they're important to be fixed because they were they were wrong. I think in one case it was a there was a multiplication was wrong and in another place it was an if statement missing. But, you know, they're needed. <laughs> that happens, would, right? Yeah, computers would do exactly what you tell them, even if it's the damn wrong thing. So, you know, <laughs> patchy, patchy, patch, patch. In terms of worthy warnings, then, um, we have talked a few times in recent months about the fact that it is unfortunately a thing that there are scams going after lonely elderly people, tricking them into thinking that they basically have a love interest on the internet and oh no something terrible has happened please help we need some money give it to me now you know help this person i've just made friends with didn't pretend well i'm afraid to say that the federal trade commission are warning that there is a serious uptick in lgbtq people being targeted either through romance scams or through sextortion which neither of them are pleasant. So again, like with the targeting of elderly people, it's people who are prone to being lonely and therefore are primed to be looking for companionship. That's being horrifically exploited by the bad guys. And I wish I could say, don't worry about it. Assume the best of people. You know, most people in the world are nice and most people in the world are nice. But you still have to keep your shields up because unfortunately it is very real. There are people losing like their entire life savings to this kind That's of horrible. shenanigans. It's ruining lives. It's it's very, very real. I'm sorry to have to say that. Uh, notable news then. Um, the first thing is that in the United Kingdom, the government are proposing, well, this was all before Boris resigned, so I don't know how, I don't know if any of this <laughs> is going to happen. Uh, but uh, before Boris exploded, the government were proposing an amendment to the UK Online Safety Bill, which basically would have altered the bill to make it mandatory to do something like the controversial CSAM scanning that Apple has officially paused. Oh. They announced last year, but have paused and have quietly said nothing about it since. Hmm. Um, so if that bill passes, then it shifts from companies doing everything reasonable to... It shifts basically to allowing the regulator to require companies to create technology to fight CSAM. So it would give the regulator the right to demand they make new technology come into existence hmm. to scan for CSAM. So, is it a bad thing? 
it is at the very least very, very, very grey. Okay. Okay. I, I won't categorically say that it is good or Maybe bad. Maybe one very of those impractical difficult. ones. And giving the power to the regulator to do something vague is a worrying approach to this. Instead of just having a law that says what needs to be done, saying that Ofcom have the power to demand something very vague is open yeah. to abuse. Yeah. Now, Ofcom, I don't think, have a history of being bad regulators, but that's only true until you appoint someone to head Ofcom who's a terrible regulator. Mm. And then that's not true anymore. So, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. If I were in the UK, I would not be a happy camper, but I'm not. So anyway, you guys have problems. Uh, <laughs> we're not going to solve them here. Uh, the other thing is just a reminder in case anyone is tempted to dip their toe into this whole cryptocurrency world. Another blockchain has exploded, losing another $100 million. Just saying. Exploded? Uh, oh, hacked to pieces. Oh, so they lost so $100 million? They lost $100 million. Yeah. And which one is that? Uh, this is the Harmony blockchain. Yeesh. Not very harmonious. <laughs> uh, anyway, moving on to some top tips to cheer us up a bit. Um, so one really cool top tip uh, came my way. I don't, I don't remember where I came across it, but basically uh, this is one of those ones, one of these bookmarks. I have a folder for them in pocket called For Reference, and this one is now proudly in there. Startup and recovery modes on M1 and M2 Max from the Electric Light Company. It's just a really nice uh, diagram of all the different modes that exist and how you get into them. Slight, co co slight correction, it is the Ooh. Eclectic Light Company. Yes, it is, which is a much cooler name. As, a, as I misspoke it. Oh, actually, this was from someone in, uh, I'll find it. Uh, that is someone from someone in our Slack because they posted it to me and said, look, it's got a mind map. You've got to love that. Slack, or maybe it was in Twitter. I have a feeling I've seen it in, I, I think I saw it on Slack after I already had it in the show notes. Oh, okay. I think I came across it on Twitter, but I don't remember... Maybe I came across it on Twitter from one of our listeners. So. Yeah, shoot. Oh, I hate it when we can't figure out who sold send it to us. So I don't see it recently in Twitter, so it might not have been from there. But uh, yeah, whoever you are, we really liked it. We do, yeah. Mind maps rock. And this is just a really useful mind map. I want an M1 or an M2 so I can use it, but I have it saved away. Yeah, it is interesting how much easier it is, is, is basically you hold down the power button and it goes, okay, let me just get you into recovery mode and we'll go from there. So it's yeah, significantly when, when, simpler than remembering all the keystrokes. Yeah, when you control the whole thing, you can make the experience a lot nicer. Yeah. Okay, uh, we have a few interesting insights if people want oh, to do Oh, I know who posted it. I did. Okay. You did. <laughs> in, in Slack. <laughs> so, <laughs> but okay, somebody sent it to me. That means that someone we both follow on Twitter posted it. Yeah. Because I definitely came across it on Twitter first. Okay. So, okay, so whoever you are, that was follow. awesome. <laughs> anyway, whoever it is, definitely cool. Uh, interesting insights then. Um, Mitre have released the 25 most dangerous software weaknesses hmm. for 2022. It is always fun to see how old mistakes just are like zombies. There are still people not sanitizing the SQL. Like good old Bobby drop tables from the XKCD comic from like years ago. People still have SQL injection. How could we not have learned these basic things? On the one hand, it's really easy not to make these 25 most common mistakes. So we can all just not be, the, the, you know, not, not be slower than our neighbor when the bear is after us. But why the heck are there so many bad software engineers out there writing this garbage still? Anyway, it's interesting. I definitely think that anyone who writes software should have a read of the 25 dumbest things. Then you won't be on the list. 
<laughs> very easy. We talked a lot about passkeys last time. Um, very good article on tidbits explaining why passkeys will be simpler and more secure than passwords. So it's just if anyone is asking you for a good link to have, like, you know, give me one link to have a read so I understand this. This is the one I will be giving to people. I've popped it into my uh, pocket folder for that reason. And if you are curious what's going on under the hood in terms of cyber in the Ukrainian war, Microsoft have released a report on what they have been seeing happening cyber-wise out of Russia while the invasion of Ukraine has been ongoing. None of it is particularly shocking to me, but it was interesting to see what Microsoft have seen happening for real, as opposed to what I've just been assuming was probably happening anyway. For the curious. Which then brings us to some palate cleansing. Uh, the first let me, one. Let me back up Ooh. really quick. I okay. just want to tell you, I'm gonna. I, I was looking for information on um, your note about it being legal for ISPs and carriers to track your browsing activity and selling it. Uh, the FTC actually published a report on what they're collecting, and uh, so I'm putting a link to that in the show notes. That, uh, that is interesting. I, I should have a read of that report just to see what they are collecting. Um, yeah, okay, that's that I'll be reading my own show notes for that. <laughs> okay, there. See, it turns out a lot of people get value out of it. Yeah, and because we write it in Git, it's all easy to do. God bless Git. Uh okay, so palette cleansing then. The first one is from you. So uh off you go. Take it away. Yeah. All right. So uh you know, we've all been uh, doing things over the years like trying to help uh find out whether uh People are trying to talk to us from other universes. Uh, I forget what the name of it is folding now. Folding at Home. We had the alien one. Well, Folding at Home was home. the later one. Uh, but And there's also, uh, through Mechanical Turk, I know a lot of people went in and tried to help find there was a plane that had crashed. And so having humans look at the photographs of the taken from satellites to try to find the, uh, the plane was a big deal. Well, now NASA scientists want you to help them find clouds on Mars. <laughs> Now, this, this is a tricky one. I went through the tutorial and tried to do it, and maybe the one I, the image I looked at didn't have any, but basically you're looking at a waveform that has um, a lot of noise, but if there's a cloud, you'll see a distinct arc with a, with a gap between the edges of the arc, so not a solid two arc. Legs. Right, it has to have two legs, uh, but sometimes there's a ton of arcs in there, and you have to zoom in and zoom out and stuff, but you can go through and help them scan these images and help them find clouds on Mars. And they explain, it, actually in the tutorial, before they get to the point where they show you the legs and tell you, you know, this is real and this is fake, they actually explain the science behind the question they're answering and why you'll be helping so much if you would very kindly find clouds, please. Yeah, so even if you don't want to dedicate some time to trying to do it, reading up on why they why they want to look for them and why it's difficult to uh, spot them is is pretty interesting. I tried to do it on my phone while walking and realized that while the <laughs> tutorial bit was very interesting, when I got to actually looking at the images, I needed way more pixels. Way oh, more yeah. pixels. <laughs> yeah, you do. And you have to zoom in and out to try to yeah. see them because it's all squashed into a little tiny frame, but you have to zoom in and look at the waveform as it grows across. So that was kind of fun. Do you want to do yeah. the next one or should I do it? Actually, can uh, I do well, it? Yeah, oh, no, you do it, it and I'll make my joke from when you say it. Ooh, okay. So basically you and I, so I've always been a fan of APOD, Astronomy Picture of the Day from NASA, and you actually pinged me one to pop into the show notes and I already had it in my RSS reader. So things sometimes line up in the same telescopic field of view to give you cool images. Well, one of the things that moves around a lot in the sky is the International Space Station. And one of the things that's often in our sky is the planet Saturn. 
Some very dedicated astronomer managed to get themselves to a point on planet Earth, which must have been a very small point, where the teeny tiny International Space Station would be in the same telescopic field of view as the planet Saturn. Not binocular field of view. Like, a telescope is looking at the tiniest piece of sky. And you've watched the International Space Station. That thing moves at a fair clip. Oh, like right, right. That's a good point. Like the f- They managed to take a photograph where the planet Saturn is about the same size as the International Space Station in the image, and it's right next to the International Space Station. That is mind-bogglingly difficult to do. And well, so we especially because if you've got if you've got so much telescopic zoom, you don't have a lot of light to work with. So as that thing's flying by, luckily it's lit up by the sun, right? Well, both of them are right, but you'll notice that Saturn is much dimmer than the International Space Station. That's because to get the exposure right for the ISS to have it not be a giant, big, white, invisible, you know, blown-out blob, they actually had to turn the exposure down quite a lot. So Saturn is quite dim. I, I made a joke to Steve when he posted this to me, and, and I made a joke to him saying, wow, I didn't realize that Saturn and the ISS were the same size. <laughs> <laughs> and his response was, yeah, and it was a near collision, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it really like is an astonishing photos. photo. It is, it, it it is, is really amazing. amazing. It's like, it's like the those astronomy- funny photographs I've never been able to take yet of an airplane appearing to fly to the moon. And I always hear, yeah. like, fly me to the moon. <laughs> The uh, astronomer's Tom Glenn, and he took it in uh, Temecula, California, from Ooh, a school parking lot. Yep, yep, right around the corner. Cool. Well, yeah, that because was it's all in the pellet. telescope, you really can't take it from anywhere. So, school parking lot, wherever, light pollution is not a problem here. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, really that was cool. very cool. Well, I like that palate cleanser. We needed that today. We did. We did. But look, I I, I said it to you before, but I I think it's. It's a good thing that we trust each other enough to have these difficult conversations on a microphone. Yeah, and and trust the audience as well. That is true, because I know that even if people don't agree with us, they will disagree with us respectfully. Correct. Because you guys rock. And now if you don't, if you're not respectful, it's your own... <laughs> you feel <laughs> like a real heel, right? <laughs> I'm just giving you a scolding up front. So <laughs> anyway, we do know that the one piece of advice that will always be good is to remember to stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Did you know you can email me at allisonpodfeet.com anytime you like? If you have a question, just send it on over. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. If you want to join in the fun of the conversation, you can join our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack, where you can talk to me and all of the other lovely new silly castaways. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You can support the show at podfeet.com slash Patreon, like Sean, or with a one-time donation at podfeet.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, you are going to have to wait a couple of weeks. We will be back live on July 31st, and then you can join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening, and stay subscribed.